Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. Um, we would like to uh, let you know that this po program has uh, been done with the support of the Bernard Osher Foundation. Uh, they do a lot of support of, of uh, literary historical books uh, here at the Commonwealth Club and bringing our authors in, as we are doing today with Sam Friedman. Um, this is, uh, you know, we've been doing these pandemic programs for almost three and a half years now, and we're finally getting our live audiences back in, and I wanted to say something about that. We've done almost a thousand programs. Uh, but I wanted to remind everybody how wonderful live theater is, you know? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's one thing to see something digitally, but to see it live, um, it, there's something else going on. You know, we're all in each other's presence, so to speak. And, uh, and so we, we recommend that you come back to the club, uh, those of you who live here in San Francisco. We now have an audience around the world. But those of you who live here in San Francisco, it's always interesting to meet the authors in person um, and to hear what's actually going on, even though it's sometimes so comfortable just to sit home and turn it on and turn it off <laughs> when you want. So that's one suggestion. Um, and if there aren't any other questions, before we get started, I'll go right to the uh, program for today. We have Samuel Friedman. He is a professor at Columbia University School of Journalism. He is also the author of this book on Hubert Humphrey, Into the Bright Sunshine, a Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. Um, for those of you who are of a certain age, like <laughs> I am, and like Sam is. Um, the idea of Hubert Humphrey being a bold, innovative, uh, courageous, and even heroic politician is kind of hard to fit into what happened in the late 60s. And so uh, I think it's just great that you wrote this book on this topic because um, it really makes it clear. I mean, he, the 1948, uh, at the 1948 Democratic Convention, he was a hero to the civil rights plank. He was very uh, sneaky like a politician, too, in putting Truman into a, a corner that he had to follow. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I wanted to start with that question, Sam. You know, uh, when you write a biography, um, as you have, um, the best biographers seem to pick the, a range of anecdotes about somebody that lets you know the whole range of their character and uh, never, never just he's an angel or just he's a devil. And uh, your, your choice here with Humphrey because of that issue was to stop basically at that convention and, and then he was elected senator. I mean, you, you followed up with an epilogue. But that was your story. You wanted to tell about what he was like as a young man, mayor of Minneapolis, well-known nationally. That's how, we, that's how we learn about Hubert. And it's a totally different Hubert Humphrey I mean, there's a few people here who, who may have been, you know, alive in 1945 uh, watching Hubert Humphrey. <laughs> but, but most of us, I think, learned about him in the 60s and 70s and what his legacy was. So let's, let's tell the story about young Hubert Humphrey, which you did, and give the audience as much as we can of that. But also, you know, I want, I want the audience to hear this because it surprised me what a man he was. Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, George, for having me. And it's such an honor to be at the Commonwealth Club. I can't tell you over the years how many conversations from the club I've listened to when NPR mm -hmm. used to carry them. And it's been sort of one of my dreams 
as an author to be on this stage. So I appreciate it so much. And look, I'm close to you in age. And I remember being almost 13 years old and watching the news coverage of the 1968 Democratic Convention when the machine bosses, whether it was Johnson, Mayor Daley, and so forth, handed Hubert Humphrey the nomination while Daley's police force was battering anti-war protesters and journalists out on the street. My parents were Gene McCarthy mm -hmm. supporters that year. I remember going with my mom to knock on doors for Gene McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And certainly my years in college and beyond, I very much lived with that sense of Humphrey. And I'm going to put up a few images if we can. Um, yeah, here, whoop, here we go. This is emblematic. This is loyalty to Lyndon. Look at these editorial cartoons. That's the Humphrey a lot of us remember. Disparaged, ridiculed, mimicked by uh, political satirists. And yet there was this earlier Humphrey that I came to believe hardly anyone knew about anymore. It's as if the paradox, George, is that people remembered being mad at Humphrey for having betrayed his liberalism, mm -hmm. but they couldn't remember the liberalism itself or what had made him mm -hmm. heroic, which is his amazing role in the battles in the 1940s against racism and also very much against anti-Semitism as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of the question you asked about how biographer takes that on, you were right that I had to contend with, on the one hand, the decision to end the book for the most part, in 1948, mm -hmm. to tell the story not only of Humphrey, but of this underappreciated proto-lowercase civil rights movement of the 1940s mm -hmm. that sets the table for Brown versus Board of Ed and the Montgomery bus boycott and all the legislation Humphrey and LBJ put through in the 60s. But I had to also acknowledge who Humphrey was in collective memory, and so that's why I actually chose to start this book with him near the end of his life giving a commencement address in the same hall where he'd given his great civil rights speech almost 30 years earlier at a time when his star has fallen, mm -hmm. when he's scorned and seen at best as a has-been and at worst as a laughingstock, and some of it deservedly over his support for Vietnam. Mm -hmm. You have to acknowledge that. You can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I put that on the table at the very outset of the book and then roll the time back to this earlier valiant idealistic man. It's interesting too that you know he was ill at the time that he did this speech that you start with. And how old was he? He wasn't that old actually. He died at 66 years old. Yeah, yeah. He seemed like an old man to, to Well, us. you can see this, is, <laughs> this photo here. He's young now. <laughs> is his last Christmas at home. It's maybe three weeks before he dies, two weeks before he dies. And you can see how shrunken mm -hmm. he is. And of course we know that going back to FDR never being photographed in his wheelchair or mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy hiding Crohn's disease, that this was a period when politicians were able to hide physical ailments. Mm -hmm. And Humphrey actually had been struggling with cancer for a full 10 years by that time. Mm -hmm. And it was only in the last year of his life that it became impossible to hide it from the media and the general public. Hmm. All right, so let's, let's start with his childhood. Let's go back to his childhood. It's very interesting, you know, uh, that he... He grew up in South Dakota and, and what the circumstances were. And I really like the story about, about the railroad crew. So, yeah. Yes, Hubert Humphrey 
is a white Protestant who grows up in an extremely white Protestant place, specifically Dolan, South Dakota, population about 500 when he's growing up there. And he, in some ways, is the least likely person to become a champion for black people and for Jews. I mean, where he grew up in Dolan, they considered the minority group there the French-Canadian Catholic immigrants who lived in a town 10 miles away. And I know it seems ridiculous, Catholics as the oppressed minority, but they were alien enough that the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross outside their town more than once. And Humphrey has this amazing encounter when he's 11 years old that has almost a mythological power to me. And it's not that it predicts everything that's going to happen in his life. That, you know, I don't believe in predestination <laughs> or preordination. But it tells you something important about his temperament and his humanity. And basically what happens, and I'm going to show you on the next slide here, is he's 11 years old. The big event in Dolan is there's going to be a gravel road put through for the first time. Dolan was created by the railroad company so that grain and livestock could get shipped into the Twin Cities. And the roads were dirt and they'd become impassable for months at a time because of snow and rain. And then finally, under a federal highway building program, they're going to put down gravel. 1922. And Humphrey, like everyone in town, is thrilled at this prospect. And he sees in the local weekly paper an item that the crew that has been subcontracted to actually lay down and spread the gravel is a crew of African Americans. And I traced their whole story. They were based out of Omaha. They were brought up by the general contractor, who's also from Omaha. This is them at work with their mule, their horse-drawn machinery. And Humphrey, being the son of a very idealistic father, and a father who taught him to treat everybody well, and a father who is a real kind of free thinker by the standards of Dolan, South Dakota, goes three miles out of town to introduce himself to this road crew, to meet these black people. And by the way, the closest black people to Dolan are 40 miles away in another town called Huron, and most of the time it would take you hours and hours to get there because of those terrible roads. So he goes to introduce himself, and he befriends them, and he's curious about them. And they take such a shine to him that when it's Saturday night, and they have their pay for the week, and they come into Dolan to, do, you know, to shop and to buy things, Hubert Humphrey is selling newspapers. It's his side hustle, mm -hmm. in addition to working in the family drugstore. And they buy all these extra copies of the newspaper from him, so he'll have some money. And they take him with them to the pool hall, which, since Dolan is dry, the pool hall is as transgressive as it gets. <laughs> and, you know, buy him bottles of soda pop. And it's this sort of revelation to him, so much so that decades later, when he's working on his autobiography, he tells the story, although very little of it actually ended up in the final book. But that incident told me something about his openness to people, his openness to difference, hmm. his curiosity about human beings. And that's what does anticipate something that's essential in the work he's going to do on civil rights. Another thing that seems essential from his... Uh childhood that you talk about is the humiliation of, of uh, the financial disaster. It was also interesting how uh, the South Dakota financial disasters preceded the 1929 Great Depression as if giving information it's coming up. 
but uh, his father went under in 25, 26, that, er that time. time. Yeah. You're, you're to absolutely right. You know, we think of the Great Depression beginning with the stock market crash in 1929. We think about the Great Plains being beset with the dust storms, which do come in the early and mid-1930s there. But in the Dakotas, primarily because of a collapse of crop prices after World War I, they're having the Depression for a good seven or eight years before the rest of the country. And when you have a small business like the Humphrey Family Drugstore and your customers are the farmers, when their wheat prices have fallen by three quarters and they're losing their land or having to sell at a loss, they don't have money in the drugs to sell, to buy things at the drugstore anymore. And that's when the Humphrey family, which had lived in the most beautiful house in town, this beautiful four-square house with a widow's walk, even though there's not an ocean for a thousand miles, mm -hmm. but they have a widow's walk, <laughs> um, they lose their home. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, they lose their drugstore. And the really important takeaway for Humphrey out of this, as he later writes, is that he realizes that failure is not just personal. That failure isn't because you made bad choices, you were reckless, you were spendthrift, you were foolish. That, sure, personal choices have a role. You know, his father made some foolish choices, like thinking he could sell opera records to farmers out in, <laughs> in the grasslands. He ordered these Caruso records on consignment and drive from farm to farm, futilely trying to sell them. <laughs> so it's not that he was blameless, but what Hubert realizes is there are these larger forces that you're sometimes barely aware of that are the penumbra in which your personal choices take place and that those larger social forces are beyond being answered by personal traits of character. Mm. And that's when he realizes, this is before Franklin Roosevelt is elected, that government, activist government, has a part to play. Mm. And that's a very radical idea in this very Republican area where he's growing up. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting example. I don't uh, focus on it completely or anything, but our society is based upon a lot of ideas. What, what makes it work is that we don't, uh, we're not a, a herd of antelope. That if <laughs> one of the antelopes breaks their leg, everybody leaves them behind and then, then the tiger gets them, or the lion gets them. Um, that we're trying to keep as many people with their talents involved. I mean, bankruptcy law does that, all kinds of other things. Healthcare does that. There's lots of things with the safety net, but that the safety net that which we have developed, which has helped many more people uh, stay that way, it was pretty much a reaction by FDR to the interest in communism and everything. And that safety net, the more and more it develops, it doesn't always develop in intelligent ways. It, it sometimes is a little bit destructively uh, set up with the incentives. But the basic idea of it has made our society much richer, um, which, is, which is not thought of in the, in the uh, extreme forms of capitalism. No, well, Humphrey sees this firsthand. You know, he goes off to college in spite of his family's economic distress in 1929 at the University of Minnesota, and within a year and a half, he has to come back from school because his family, having lost everything in Doland, mm -hmm. is going to try to start over in this other town, Huron, about 40 miles away. And they can't afford to have Humphrey and his brother Ralph in college. Mm -hmm. Plus, they need a pharmacist to work in the drugstore. So Humphrey comes back 
takes a pharmacy course, which would be a three-year course. He crams it in six months at a pharmacy, sc pharmacy school in Denver. Mm -hmm. And then he's there in Huron, and he sees firsthand what New Deal programs mean. For instance, his family, after they lost their first house, had bought a much lesser house at auction. Mm -hmm. They couldn't sell it. They were in debt. So it's a New Deal program that gives them mortgage relief and ultimately buys it from them. Mm -hmm. The farmers outside Huron are getting crop supports from the government. The young men, the teenagers of Huron, are going into the Civilian Conservation Corps. Mm -hmm. And all of this is allowing the Humphrey family's new drugstore to survive. So again, in this very tactile, hands-on way, Hubert Humphrey sees what the New Deal means. And he was always a politician who is partly from the shoulders up with this great mind and this ability to synthesize information and a, a steel trap memory. But he finally had to operate from his heart and his gut. Mm -hmm. He could only engage with theory or engage with intellect after something viscerally had connected to him. And he sure had the visceral experiences of both impoverishment and then recovery in his family and among his neighbors and townspeople in the Dakotas. What I also liked about the way you told this story was, you know, you could visualize this guy in your high school class, you know, uh, is Hubert Humphrey, because he was a debater. Yeah. You know, he was the debater, all, talking all the time, talking too much, too long sometimes, mm -hmm. but still very effective debater. Um, and in a small town, somebody couldn't talk like that. Everybody looks at him and he's going to go someplace. He's going to go. Some Sometimes they think he's going to go so far. In this case, he got awfully close to the presidency. So. Yeah, they were right. Yeah. But he was the star. But, you know, to keep it in perspective, he was the valedictorian of a graduating class of, I think, 12. So, <laughs> um, but he was the star. And interestingly, as you say, he, from childhood on, had that dangerous self-destructive capacity to speak too long, mm -hmm. not to know when it's time to stop. Years later, uh, his wife Muriel says something pitch perfect to him. This is actually not long before his famous civil rights speech in 48. He's giving a speech actually here in San Francisco to the AFL. It had not yet merged with the CIO. And he goes on for like 45 minutes. And at the hotel with Muriel after, he's convinced he gave this great speech. And Muriel says to him, Hubert, a speech does not have to be eternal to be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> and even, and when, when Hubert Humphrey was an undergrad, he ends up having to leave the University of Minnesota for six years because of the Depression, and we can fill in that story later. Mm -hmm. But when he goes back to finish up his bachelor's degree in his mid to late 20s, and he's majoring in political science, he and Hubert Humphrey style would occasionally give these impromptu speeches on the issues of the day, on the steps of some of the classroom buildings, mm -hmm. and a man who would later become one of his closest aides and ultimately his successor as mayor, Arthur Naftalin, didn't know who Humphrey was, walks by, sees one of his speeches, and says to himself, who is this crackpot? I think there's something mentally ill with this man. <laughs> um, so he always had that big, big drawback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so we've got him through high school. Um, and, and into college, as you said, he had to come back as a pharmacist. So it's interesting. He, his story was not all that much different than the haberdasher, you know, from Missouri um, mm -hmm. that he ended up dealing with, um, uh, Harry Truman. So here he was a pharmacist that he was helping his 
family out. And I think you did a great job of, of the fear he had of leaving his father without his support, but the anger that he was developing, that he was, his life was being completely subsumed by helping his father out. And I, I think that their conversation that they finally had about it was very interesting. You can imagine these South Dakotans who don't ever talk to each other, but keep doing the same thing over and over again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be a geographical essentialist. But, you know, no, um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting talking about the craft of biography before you triangulate between someone's own version of their life mm -hmm. and what you find out about it. And Humphrey, everything he ever wrote about his father at book length, at article length, was adoring and completely uncritical. Mm -hmm. But his father, who everyone called H.H., was a much more complicated piece of work than that. Mm -hmm. He was idealistic, but he was also a little bit of a hustler who never really succeeded at these kind of wacky side hustles like selling the opera records or selling patent medicines. And he wanted to be the political star of the family, and he wanted Hubert to be subordinate to him. And when they're in Huron, South Dakota, and Hubert has had to drop out of college and is working you know, probably 70 hours a week as the one pharmacist in the family drugstore, he's also supposed to be the political aide so that his father can run for legislature and run for governor. And a couple of things happen that redirect his life. One is that Hubert has a sister who has left South Dakota to try to go to college, put herself through college at GWU, George Washington, in Washington, D.C. And Humphrey goes to visit her in the summer of 1935 and sees Congress in session for the first time and goes to the Smithsonian and sees the monuments. And by this time, Muriel is his girlfriend. And at this time, mail would be delivered two, sometimes three times a day. Mm -hmm. So they're corresponding several times each day on this trip. And he writes to her and says, I know you'll think this is crazy, but I feel like this is what I'm meant to do, is to be here and to be in public service. Mm. And she writes back to him and says, you're, it's not crazy. Your dream is my dream, but you're going to have to leave your father. She's the one who puts the iron in his backbone, mm -hmm. who says, if you don't leave, you're going to be crushed under his own desire to be the star of the family. And it's only because of the glimpse of Washington his sister Frances gave him and, you know, the, the, implore, the imploring that Muriel gave him that he finally wrenches himself free of H.H. and goes back to finish his degree at the University of Minnesota in 1936. And that's also where he begins to take professors who are very ardent New Dealers, and he begins from a more academic standpoint to learn about the precepts of the New Deal. So in 36, and he was how old in school then? Almost 30, right? Yeah, he was 25 years old, going for his, to yeah. finish the second semester of his sophomore year. And his sister, Frances, uh, was younger than he was by a couple of years. And you, you said a couple of people that she worked for. She worked for quite famous people uh, who, were, who were very liberal. Yeah. yeah, well, Frances was chronologically the younger sister, but in all other ways, like the older sister. Mm -hmm. And she was discovered by Eleanor Roosevelt uh, soon after uh, getting out of grad school, which was also at GWU, and being a social worker for a church federation in Washington. Eleanor Roosevelt plucks her. Mm -hmm. And there's a really important moment they have together, which influences things Humphrey will later do, which is that um, Eleanor Roosevelt wants to desegregate the restaurant at the Shoreham Hotel in Washington. And the way she does it is she and Francis go over there with a group of workers, both white and black workers, from one of the war preparations program, 
and just show up and say, we're having lunch here. Mm. And because she's the first lady, the manager of the restaurant doesn't dare, you know, insist upon the segregated rules that normally held sway. And Humphrey does the same thing several times in his career when he wants to once at a restaurant in Minneapolis and once at the Senate dining room when he's a new senator, mm -hmm. he just shows up with a black person as his lunch guest mm -hmm. and basically dares the management not to seat them. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's interesting how many people have done that and, and uh, how successful that was. I mean, there's a story about Marilyn Monroe doing that for Ella Fitzgerald, I believe. Um, and then she just said, I'll come every night to your, to your uh, nightclub but not, you know, but you have to have Elvis Cheryl be the, the star. Right, it was either in Las Vegas or Miami Beach. I can't remember ah, okay. which. I've heard but, that. But there's a lot. It's, yeah. it's interesting to learn this about famous people, the ones who actually would, would use their fame in this way. So, um, yeah, and, and she worked for Ralph Bunch, too, if I remember correctly. Well, she right. studied with Ralph Bunch. So ah. even though she was going to GWU, she was doing her master's thesis on high school dropouts, and she asked to be able to study with Ralph Bunch and E. Franklin Frazier, who were both teaching at Howard, the great HBCU in Washington. Mm -hmm. So she was really out ahead of even Hubert um, on this. And right. Yeah, I think it's really, really interesting to know that Francis pushed him. And, and there's and Francis Muriel pushed and, him. and there's Muriel. <laughs> so just to put some faces on the anecdotes. Yeah. And this is, if I can jump in, yeah. you know, Humphrey, by the time he finishes his undergraduate degree, he's motivated to public service, but he's kind of a standard issue New Dealer. His view of activist government is oriented around economic issues, around issues of economic class as the New Deal was. And there's actually been a great deal of tension in Minneapolis and even on the university campus around the treatment of black people and students and of Jewish people and students to the point that actually the president of the university would keep a census of blacks and Jews and report it to this right-wing Republican operative so these people could be tracked and spied upon. And black students couldn't live in university You're housing. not talking about today. I'm sorry? You're not talking about today. No. We're talking about 1940s. Okay. Well, the past is the present sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And that's... And Humphrey's oblivious to that. When he's finishing up his degree, he's married, he's going to soon have their first child. He's trying to catch up on all the missed years. He's totally unaware of these battles that are going on about racism and anti-Semitism right in Minneapolis. But what happens is he gets into grad school at Louisiana State. He goes there for one and only one reason. They have a $400 graduate assistantship. And with no money to speak of, and a wife and now a new baby, a daughter, Nancy, he needs that 400 bucks. Mm -hmm. So he goes south. And this is the first time in his life he's been in a Jim Crow society. This becomes the pivotal year of his life. You can't understand Humphrey without knowing what happened in the 1939-1940 academic year when he's at LSU in Baton Rouge. Um, Huey Long's... Um, university that he built up. And when Humphrey goes there, first of all, he's living with Muriel in a neighborhood near downtown, a mile and a half from the LSU campus. In between is a neighborhood called The Bottom, which is the main black neighborhood of, of Baton Rouge. So every day going back and forth, he's intimately seeing black life in a Jim Crow society. And not just the things that we all know about, our mental images of 
the separate water fountains, the segregated waiting rooms, the segregated toilets, all that is certainly there. But what he remembers are these individual humiliations, a black pedestrian who's too slow crossing the street in the eyes of a white motorist, and it is reviled with racial slurs for everyone to see. Mm. Black people in the lobby of the state capitol afraid to get into the elevator if there's a white person in it. He and Muriel, as poor as they are, can afford a black housekeeper named Maggie, who tells them about what it's like when the white bill collectors come into the black neighborhoods to intimidate people into paying their bills. That stays with him. That affects him deeply. Then what's less expected in um, a place like Baton Rouge, it doesn't surprise us that there's a large black population, about one third of the city, but it's also where Humphrey makes Jewish friends for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. He's on the debate team there too. And his closest friend from the debate team is a law student named Alvin Rubin, who actually Humphrey and Johnson would later appoint a federal judge, and he handed down some really important um, desegregation rulings in Louisiana. Alvin Rubin tells Humphrey about his family's five uncles who were trapped in Eastern Europe in the maw of the Nazis, none of whom will survive. Mm. And this is the beginning but of they Humphrey's... Were, but at the time that he told the story... They were just caught, but they, they weren't dead yet. They weren't dead. Well, so we don't was, really know. Right, but it was early enough. It, they, was, it was before World War II had started. And so, so he was getting this information about what was happening to the Jews before the big news right. and came he's out. Get, right, and he's getting this news at a time, remember, when there's you know, a huge amount of isolationist sentiment in this country. This isn't our war, but here's his best friend talking about these relatives who were trapped. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing, and this is this fellow here um, on my left, your right, Rudolf Eberly, who Humphrey studies with for a year. Eberly is a sociologist from Germany, one-eighth Jewish, anti-Nazi, stripped of his position and forced into penniless exile with his family because not only, of course, was he part Jewish, which for the Nazis was as good as all Jewish, even though his family had actually converted to Christianity generations earlier, but Eberle's academic project had been to study how it is that democratic societies can turn within literally two to four years into dictatorships. Mm -hmm. And for that research, he was persona non grata. Mm -hmm. So he's scrambling to find a place to teach in the US and to be able to stay here and gets this job at LSU, and Humphrey studies with him. And in the class that Humphrey takes with him, not only does Eberly talk about his research in Germany, and ultimately he was writing a book about it during those first years in Baton Rouge, he talks about his family's experience. And he talks about the parallels he sees between the, the Nazi treatment of Jews and the Jim Crow treatment of blacks. Mm -hmm. And this just, is, is stunning and revelatory and influential for Humphrey to the point where decades later, Humphrey writes a letter to celebrate Eberly's 80th birthday and recalls the day in class when Eberly turned to the dozen students in the seminar and said, if we were in Germany, maybe two of you would stand up to the Nazis. And so Humphrey learns all about moral courage and also about compromise and complacency and cowardice from Rudolf Eberly. And the last thing I'll, I'll say is a lot of people from the North, a lot of liberals would have had that experience in the South, particularly in terms of race. And when they went back North as Humphrey did 
in uh, September of 1940, they would wipe their brow and think, well, fortunately now I'm going back to the enlightened North. And that's what liberals in Minneapolis said to themselves when they were questioned about their racial attitudes. It'd be like, oh, we don't lynch blacks. You know, they can buy a home. They can work. You know, why can't they just be happy staying in their little ghetto on the north side and working their menial jobs? But, you know, we're not like those people down south. Humphrey really incredibly can immediately draw the parallel between segregation in the south and segregation in the North. To use the black idiom, he knows that there's down South and up South. Mm -hmm. He knows that there's de, de jure segregation and de facto segregation. And when he comes back to Minneapolis to start his public life in 1940, suddenly he sees what's been in Minneapolis all along mm -hmm. and realizes that he is called to reckon with these issues of racism and anti-Semitism. Well, one little shout out here from this story uh, to all the uh, new PhDs who are looking for a job and can't find a job in different places. If you end up at LSU or you end up at some place that you weren't really expecting to, you might end up with a student like Hoover Humphrey who goes out and actually changes things. So don't give up. No. Because <laughs> that, that was very influential. It was a transformative year of his life. Yeah, and, and, and certainly Humphrey transformed civil rights. I mean, he wasn't the only one, but right. he was one of the top 100 people who helped transform civil rights in America. And, and uh, this professor who came from Germany escaped and didn't really want to go to LSU, but that's where he ended up. He was responsible for having given him the idea. All this, the whole year there makes yeah. Humphrey the Humphrey we know. Yeah. Okay, so we've given the professor his due. Yes. <laughs> yes, Rudolf Eberl. I'm happy to, uh, to sort of lift him up because he doesn't show up in any of the other writing about Humphrey. Humphrey doesn't yeah. even mention him yeah. in, the, uh, in the autobiography, but remarkable man. Yeah. All right. So he comes back from LSU uh, to Minneapolis. And uh, what's he doing for a living? Well, he has a bunch of different jobs in, in Minneapolis. Um, he gets a job with a New Deal program doing workers' education. Then when the war starts, he's involved in war mobilization and morale building. And even though he'd begun to work on his doctoral um, studies at the University of Minnesota, that quickly falls by the wayside because he's much more motivated to public life. And he's starting to give speeches all over the state with the war mobilization program. But the other thing that's really important now that he's gone through his moral awakening is he meets two people who are going to be his tutors in Minneapolis. Um, one of them is Cecil Newman, who is a former Pullman porter, who is the founder, publisher, and editor of the black newspaper in Minneapolis, The Spokesman, still published to this day by his granddaughter, Tracy Williams Dillard. Mm -hmm. And the other one is Sam Shiner, who's um, a Jewish lawyer. He couldn't get hired by any of the reputable law firms in town because he was Jewish, he was supporting himself as a jazz pianist for a while. Mm -hmm. And Cecil Newman's project with the spokesman has been to chronicle and call out all the different forms of racism in Minneapolis. You know, the George Floyd murder did not come from nowhere. That's all I can say. Mm -hmm. He's writing about police brutality. He's writing about employment discrimination. He's writing about racism on the part of labor unions. He's writing about the kind of dog whistle language that the main newspapers use when they write crime stories. He, at one point, 
organizes a boycott of six local breweries because they won't hire black workers. Mm -hmm. But Cecil Newman has no political power. The black population in Minneapolis is maybe one and a half, two percent tops. They're not a big voting block in the election. He can't force change by himself. At best, he can try to publicly shame someone or hope that there'll be an investigation. But really, he is a lonely crusader on these issues. And Sam Shiner in the Jewish world is the same thing. Um, Minneapolis is a hotbed of pro-Nazi sentiment at that time. A group called the Silver Shirts regularly rallies there. Um, Gerald L.K. Smith, sort of the Donald Trump of his day, the founder of the um, America First Party and the proponent of, as he called it, Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Gerald L.K. Smith is a regular speaker in town. Um, Jews can't even belong to the automobile club in Minneapolis. In a lot of cities, Jews owned department stores. In Minneapolis, they couldn't even work at department stores. And the Jews and the blacks are kind of penned together in the same neighborhood on the north side. And Sam Shiner, again, is doing what he can. He's trying to, you know, bring complaints to the public. He sends spies to record the anti-Semitic sermons of certain ministers and the anti-Semitic meetings of the Silver Shirts and finds all these powerful people in town are attending, the pre, you know, the president of the Board of Ed, the head of the real estate board. It's not just the riffraff. And Shiner doesn't have sufficient power. And then Humphrey comes to town. And Humphrey needs education, and they need someone who's both idealistic and possessed of political acumen. Mm -hmm. And I once remember the great... Um, South African playwright Atho Fugard, when I was writing an article about him, talking about two characters in a play of his and saying they didn't know it, but they had an appointment. Mm -hmm. And Hubert Humphrey, Sam Shiner, and Cecil Newman didn't know it, but they had an appointment. Mm -hmm. And that appointment happens in the early 1940s when Humphrey begins to get really tutored in racism in Minneapolis by Cecil Newman, tutored in anti-Semitism in Minneapolis by Sam Shiner, and because Humphrey has political ambition and skill, he can put these issues in the front of the public debate the way they never have been before. You talk about public shame just a little while ago, and uh, one of the public shames for Humphrey was that he wasn't able to serve in the war, and that, that was pretty tough at his age to not go, even though he already had a family. Uh, lots of people were going with family. So you're, you're right, Humphrey really wanted to be in the war, but he was a father of, by the end of the war, three children. He had a double hernia. He had some other ailments. And, try and, and as much as he tried and tried and tried to enlist, he could never get accepted. And it did leave him feeling humiliated and frustrated. But it also led to a couple of key moments for him. His friend from the debating team at the University of Minnesota, Orv Freeman, who would later become Secretary of Agriculture under JFK and then um, Governor of Minnesota. He goes with the Marines to fight in the Pacific, in New Guinea, where he'll later suffer catastrophic wounds to his face. And at one point he writes this amazing letter to Humphrey and says, if you want to tell people on the home front what we're thinking about here, we're thinking about how you have to win the war at home meaning the war against intolerance, the war against forms 
of racial and religious supremacy. That's what we're counting on you to do. And I think that has a huge effect on Humphrey. And Humphrey has a similar exchange with a young man, a German-Jewish refugee who ends up in Minneapolis and then is drafted and is um, assigned because of his language skills to be a guard at a camp for German POWs out in Kansas. And Humphrey writes a letter to him saying how frustrated he is that he can't get into the military. And this young German-Jewish immigrant GI writes back and says, you should hear what the people say here. They talk about how the war is the fault of the Jews. They talk about how we're fighting the war because of the N-words. Um, they talk about how we're fighting it for the British. You have a fight to fight at home. You don't need to go overseas to fight this battle. This battle's on the home front, too. And Humphrey really, I think, takes strength and direction and purpose from these kinds of communications because he runs for mayor once in 1943. He narrowly loses. He runs again in 1945, and he runs fervently on issues of battling intolerance. Mm -hmm. Right at the end of, or right before the end of the war, but everyone knew that the war was coming to an end. Exactly. Um, just want to remind the audience, especially the audience uh, online, that if you'd like to ask a question of Professor Friedman, um, you can put it right into the YouTube chat monitor, and uh, we will uh, get it on stage, and then we'll ask him. And if anybody else has one a little bit later, uh, we'll pass it on a microphone. So, so you just got him to, to the end of the war, and he is, uh, he, as I said, he failed at running for mayor once, and he won the second time. Um, and he deals with, uh, we, we, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time for the 48 election so, um, I, I, I convention, so I want to just do that Absolutely. real quickly. But, but it wasn't all perfect in those three years as mayor, but he became more and more famous uh, and identified with the civil rights thing. Yeah. Right. Humphrey becomes a national leader on civil rights. He takes over the city that's actually notorious for being the most anti-Semitic city in the country and has this deep strain of racism in it as well. Mm -hmm. And as mayor, he puts through one of the first really meaningful fair employment acts in the country. He's in the process of passing a law against restrictive covenants in housing until the Supreme Court um, rules it unconstitutional, which mm -hmm. settles the issue. He forces Minneapolis to study its own intolerance. He brings two black sociologists from Fisk University, the HBCU in Nashville, mm -hmm. up to Minneapolis to oversee the study using local volunteers to document the depth of bigotry in Minneapolis, and that's part of his leverage to push through his legislative program as mayor. Mm -hmm. And that's what begins to give him the national reputation that will bring him to the convention in 1948. Now, it was not a, a, a high interest topic by many other big city mayors anywhere. You know, I mean, it, certainly they knew about the problems, but I was very bold to, to push that. It was very bold, and there was no political reward for it, if you were pushing the civil rights agenda in a city with a large number of black voters in Chicago or Detroit or New York, I mean, it's not insignificant. The work is the work. But Humphrey's doing it in a city where it's not going to get him elected because the black votes and the Jewish votes together are a minuscule amount of the total mm. vote. It, you know, it says something about his commitment to these issues that it was actually, you know, counter logical to run. Um, mm as a civil rights candidate. Yeah, well, it's very interesting to find a politician behaving like that. Um, 
So he, he's been mayor for a couple of years, and then the 1948 Democratic election is coming up, and he is uh, going to be one of the Minnesota uh, um, voters now. So delegates. Delegates, that's the word, thank you. Um, so he and a group, with I think 88, what? The Americans for Democratic Action. Americans for Democratic Action. And what, what's their position inside the Democratic Party, and what are they thinking? Well, the Democratic Party, oh, I should have added one other thing, which is on the last slide. Humphrey was almost assassinated yeah. in retaliation for his civil rights work. At the same time he was moving forward his agenda in Minneapolis, one night someone tries to gun him down. And it's someone who is a white supremacist who's found all this, all this pro-Nazi literature and guns and knives. Anyway, but back to the 1948 convention. Shot, him, uh, shot at him right outside of his house. Right outside so his house. His whole family is at, at uh, yeah. Right, and the really creepy thing about it is it seems that the reason he missed is that the Humphreys' pet dog had barked and rattled the shooter right before he pulled the trigger. Mm -hmm. The dog vanishes a couple of weeks later. Yeah. Anyway, so heading into the 48 convention, just to frame it, as great as Franklin Roosevelt was as president, he had always dodged the civil rights issue. The New Deal coalition was this really unlikely Rube Goldberg contraption of labor union people, urban Jews, urban Catholics, liberal intellectuals, and the whole Southern segregationist wing of the party. At that time, it was the Democrats in the South, not the Republicans, who were the party of white supremacy and of segregation and, and of Jim Crow. And FDR's calculation was, in order to win election, I need the electoral votes from the South. In order to get my New Deal programs through Congress, I need the support of these long-serving and very powerful Southern senators and representatives. So I will put carve-outs in some New Deal programs, including Social Security, that don't cover agriculture and domestic workers, which means 90% of employed blacks in the South at this time. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna let Southern states implement New Deal programs locally, in other words, in a totally racist way, and in return, they'll keep voting for me. And when it comes time at every party convention to have a platform written, we're gonna put all this vague language about civil rights in there so the Southerners can interpret it as giving them support for what they call states' rights, i.e. our right to have a Jim Crow system in our state. And Harry Truman is a sort of of two minds. When Truman becomes president after FDR's death, he's very affected by a wave of brutal and sometimes lethal attacks on black war veterans, mm -hmm. and in, including this man, Isaac Woodward, a sergeant who's pulled off a bus in South Carolina, and the local police chief beats him and gouges his eyes out. And Woodward becomes a national speaker on behalf of civil rights. That really gets to Truman. Mm -hmm. um, and he starts to move forward on civil rights, and then he looks down the calendar at running for election in November 1948 and decides, I've got to back away from my own program. And Humphrey and the ADA people decide, we're going to force the issue at the 1948 convention. No more vague, equivocal language about civil rights. No more appeasing the southern wing of the party. Truman wants a fuzzy plank. The southerners are saying, if any civil rights language is in this plank, we're walking out. In fact, they've already reserved railroad cars to take them from Philadelphia 
to Birmingham, Alabama for a Dixiecrat party convention if the need arises. And that's where Humphrey fits into this larger picture of forcing the issue. And keep in mind, now political conventions are so prepackaged, mm -hmm. there are no surprises. Back in this time, there would be a lot of flux and uncertainty and genuine floor battles at political conventions. And that's what's going to happen around civil rights in 1948. So there's, there's the Southern Democrats who are obviously completely against it. There's the ADA who are completely in favor of it. And there's the Truman Wing, which said that they are in favor of it, but for political reasons and to keep the Southern Democrats, they're against it. And so what's Humphrey, who's Humphrey hearing from? I mean, he's a young man. He's a... He's 35 or something, right? Politically speaking, he's a kid. Yeah. He's 37 years and he's, old. And he's the mayor of Minneapolis. He's yeah. not a senator. He's, you know. Exactly. And that's the only elected office he's ever held. He's only been in it for three years. Right. Because of the delay in finishing up college, because of the depression, he's only nine years since he got his bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's, in a way, way over his head. And... The Truman people are letting him know that. Mm. Uh, one of Truman's four leaders, a senator, says to Humphrey that if he gives a speech, your career is over. It's the end of you. Mm. Another one calls Humphrey a pipsqueak. Mm. Um, Truman is writing in his diary about this civil rights plank and calling the people behind it, including Humphrey, crackpots. Mm. So, and then there's another factor in the convention which is the mass movement led by A. Philip Randolph, the great black labor and civil rights leader. So while all of this turmoil is happening inside the conventional, outside is A. Philip Randolph there on the far left leading a picket line for his campaign to have black men refuse to register for the draft or refuse to serve in the armed forces until Harry Truman desegregates the military. So it's like this vice is closing in on Truman mm -hmm. from all sides, and Humphrey is very much part of that vice. Mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of really turns the screw at the last minute. So, so the ADA, uh, but as you said, it wasn't a, a prepackaged thing. They, they each had to figure out how to get approval for being able to give their speech, being able to do this. And, and uh, there was a senator, he's relatively famous, who had to make those decisions. What's it? So well, Sam Rayburn was Sam the Rayburn, Speaker right. of the House, and he was the chair of the convention because he was so knowledgeable of parliamentary procedure. Mm. And you're right, George, there are all these intricate parliamentary rules and all these levels you have to go through. So Humphrey and the other civil rights liberals first try to get their plank, which calls for desegregating the military, an end to the poll tax, outlawing lynching, making a permanent fair employment practices commission for the US government. They try to, they first have to go through a committee to get it approved and they get shot down, they get voted down. And it's only because one of uh, Humphrey's allies happens to be a protege of Sam Rayburn's on the subject of parliamentary procedure. And he knows this intricate way that you can get a second chance, mm -hmm. which is to present their plank to the whole convention, not just one committee, but to all the delegates and have someone speak for it, which is Humphrey, and then have all the delegates vote on it. Mm -hmm. So that's the only reason the speech ever happens. So the get on the schedule... He's, he's trying to prepare the speech. You know, it was very interesting. I mean, we have 
just a little bit about, you know, where he was going with it in his own head before he got up and gave it. Right. Well, first of all, Humphrey has pulled an all-nighter with his people. He, he's sleepless. He's writing this speech in his hotel room at 5 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day he's going to deliver it at about 12.30 p.m., shortly after noontime. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, he's fervently working on it and revising it and tweaking it. On the other hand, he's fearful right until the very end. And I think there are two elements that are really key to why he ultimately forges ahead. One, talking about Muriel before, who was such a key advisor to him. This is such a great example of, as they said in Second Wave Feminism, the personal is the political. Mm -hmm. Muriel, during the week of the convention, is back in Minnesota looking for a lakeside cottage or cabin that the family can rent for a little vacation after the convention. And she's writing these several letters a day, every day, to Hubert saying, I just found out that the resort we wanted to rent the cabin at supposedly discriminates against Jews. I'm going to drive up there and find out. And she drives up there and confronts them and finds out it's true. And on the morning that Humphrey is saying, do I or don't I give the speech? And by the way, the civil rights plan covers religious discrimination as well. So this really has effects for Jewish Americans. Humphrey gets this letter from Muriel saying, it's true. They won't take Jews. We can't go there. This is not our value system. And this would be also politically a mistake for us to do. And I think that is a jolt that Humphrey needs. And then when he's literally on the podium waiting to be called up to speak, and one of these grizzled big city political bosses, Ed Flynn from the Bronx, who is not known, like most of them are not known for being particularly bold on civil rights, Mm -hmm. but they're worried that without a big black turnout, they're going to lose all the down-ballot races. They already think Truman's a goner. He's going to lose. But they at least want to win some of the down-ballot races. And so Flynn goes up to Humphrey and gives him a hug and says, we should have done this a long time ago. Hmm. And it's really within a couple of moments of that you know, admonition when Humphrey goes up to the microphone. And w- that speech, first of all, is helped by the fact that it's limited to 10 minutes. Remember Muriel's (laughs) advice. It doesn't have to be eternal to be immortal. So in the spirit of everybody needs an editor, Humphrey knows that he is only 10 minutes. Mm. And it's a brilliant speech because it is idealistic, but it's also pragmatic at times. He talks about the Cold War and how in the battle for the hearts and minds of decolonized countries in Asia and Africa and South America, you can't be hypocritical. The Soviet Union is presenting communism as the political system of racial equality and making a propaganda heyday out of the Jim Crow system in the United States. And Humphrey's saying, we can't have that in this battle of, you know, all over the globe between two belief systems, liberal democracy and communism. He adds a line that was put in by one of his close aides and allies, Eugenie Anderson, that basically says, we're just endorsing what Harry Truman already said, which Mm -hmm. literally was true, even though Truman was trying to run away from it. (laughs) But the two great literary touches of the speech were phrases that Truman had been working, I mean, that Humphrey had been working on for a long time and trying different versions of them. And he finally got them just right in this speech. And one of them 
is when he says to those who say we're moving too soon on civil rights, I say we're 172 years too late, going back to 1776. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the other great line, which gives my book its title, is he said that we've got to, the Democratic Party must walk out of the shadow of states' rights and into the bright sunshine of human rights. And that language, I think, touches a couple of important elements of Humphrey's background. One, of course, is the 23rd Psalm and walking through the shadow of the valley of death. But the other is this experience of dust storms. Mm -hmm. When Hubert Humphrey, as a young pharmacist, endured these dust storms, they would leave him depressed for days after, and he would write in letters to Muriel that I thought it was the end of the world. Mm -hmm. He was phobic for the rest of his life about dust. He would compulsively clean up mm -hmm. any place he ever lived, remembering the dust that you couldn't stop from insinuating itself. So when he's talking about the shadow of states' rights, he's thinking of the sky closing in with the dust. And when he's talking about the bright sunshine of human rights, he's, I think, referring to that amazing moment when the storm has ended mm. and you thought you'd never see the sun again, and there it is, and maybe we're going to survive. Mm. So those are the two signature phrases from this speech. Yeah, and, uh, and he was a... First, it's... Uh, explain that how many people listened to this because this was broadcast yeah. 60 million people were listening on radio and they had just put up i think nbc had just put coaxial cable along the northeast what we would now call the amtrak corridor from boston mm -hmm. to washington so about 10 million people are watching him speak on tv so this accumulated audience of 70 million people and there are 1500 delegates voting, or some of them are alternates, about 1,500 delegates in the convention hall and another 13,000-plus spectators in the convention hall. And this is a time when the population of the United States is, you know, so this is almost half the population watching, it, pretty much. Right. This is like the way we watch the Super Bowl now. Right. Yeah. So he had his moment and became a star and then won uh, the election for senator from Minnesota at that time, moved to Washington. That's where your, 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 your story ends very dramatically and very, very um, appropriately. So you have a couple of follow-ups. Uh, if anybody has a, a, a question, just uh, hang on to it for just a little bit longer. So you have a couple of epilogues that kind of follow up on what happened. Well, I first wanted to, I'll get to those epilogues, but the first thing to understand is what the effect of that speech was. N number one, Harry Truman has to run as a civil rights candidate. Mm -hmm. Two weeks after the convention, Truman desegregates the military and desegregates the federal workforce. Two real landmarks in civil rights progress. Mm -hmm. Then he wins his famous Dewey defeats Truman upset election for one reason, a surge of black voters in key swing states, mm -hmm. including California, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's his margin of victory over Dewey. And ultimately, now we get to the longer term's effects. By showing that the Democratic Party could win the White House while losing many states in the South, because the Dixiecrats win several of them, that unshackles the Democratic Party from obedience to the South and remakes it into a more multiracial, civil rights-oriented party. And that sets the table for what Humphrey and LBJ will do in 1963, 64, 65, 66. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act. 
So those would not have been possible without the breakthrough of 1948. And on the other hand, when the Dixiecrats leave the Democratic Party, that's the first step on the road to Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so we're living with the long-term effects of that as well. Right. That's just fascinating what, what yeah, I mean, when people think that it's just uh, impersonal forces that make things happen, those had to be decisions by a man and his advisors, you know, and I'm not, you know, it, it's overstating to say that that was the cause of all the civil rights thing, but there's certainly a major force that brought uh, a lot of white liberals into uh, a much more forceful position on taking that and just of, instead of just saying, oh, uh, we treat them nicely and all that. Exactly. Kind of. And I think what it did is, you know, there's a bit of conventional wisdom out there now that I disagree with, and I think Humphrey proves this, that a kind of economic inequality class-based liberalism is incompatible with what we would now call identity politics, which is a term I have problems with, but with the idea that if you take on directly forms of discrimination, that somehow that's in competition against you know, economic inequality for what the liberal agenda should be. And Humphrey realized it's not either or, it's both and. And that's what he accomplished in 48. And I think that's become, I think, a standard of the Democratic Party right up to this day. Mm -hmm. I see a question. Okay. Let's look at, uh, if we could, Hubert Humphrey, the man, 1948. 20 years fast forward, Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, 1968. Johnson's inner circle, Johnson's inner head will not let him admit the mistake of Vietnam and get him to move to get out in Robert McNamara's, you know, jettisoned for that. Did Hubert Humphrey, I mean, he carried the label when he ran against Nixon and Nixon's fake peace with honor right. and I have a plan. Um, did Hubert Humphrey lose his North Star by getting pinned with Johnson Vietnam 2.0? That's a great question, and I think a lot of people believe that Humphrey, deep down, was against the war and stuck with it out of loyalty to Johnson. I actually disagree with that um, for a couple of reasons. One, and this, I'm not going to go into the weeds with this, but Humphrey was very predisposed to believe in the domino theory, the idea that you know communism wanted to take over the whole world, because when he was active in statewide politics in Minnesota, there actually was an active communist movement in what was then the Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota that really did try to control what was ultimately the merged Democrat Farmer Labor Party. And there were bitter internal fights over whether the communists and the fellow travelers or the non-communist liberals would end up controlling the party. And Humphrey's faction did win. But I think Humphrey because of that, overinterpreted that there was much more communist subversion afoot, even domestically and worldwide, than was often the case. So I think that he was too ready to believe in the domino theory out of his own visceral experience in Minnesota. And also, I found this amazing oral history from George McGovern in my research. McGovern and Humphrey had been very close. In fact, Francis, Humphrey's sister, had been the key worker for McGovern's first campaign for Congress. And then, of course, Humphrey and McGovern fell out completely over Vietnam, and they were rivals in 1972 for the nomination, and McGovern won it, and Humphrey was really humiliated in that loss. 
And they ultimately did reconcile and they lived near each other in, it was either Rockville or Bethesda or Chevy Chase, one of the Maryland suburbs right outside of DC. And McGovern recounts going for a walk with Humphrey. This must have been in the mid 1970s. And Humphrey saying to him, you know, George, everyone thinks I supported Vietnam because of Lyndon. It's not true. He said, I believed in it. I know now I was wrong, but I don't want you to think that I would have, that I would have acted against my own beliefs just out of loyalty. And I found that fairly persuasive. And by the time Humphrey in 68 was announcing that he wanted to have peace talks, LBJ had done the same thing. They had both realized there had to be um, an exit ramp. And as you point out, Nixon being Nixon ran this stealthy back channel um, operation to convince the South Vietnamese not to go into peace talks because they would get a better deal from him. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll have time for one more. What was the press coverage and editorial stance after Humphrey gave his speech? And what was the reaction in different places in the country? Yeah, it's a great question. What was the press reaction? I think it depended what part of the country you were in. And, and I think even papers that we now think of being great liberal papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post were more equivocal than I didn't read their editorials. But I think it was basically favorable, but in a tepid, let's not go too fast way. Um, what I did look at extremely closely was every telegram and every letter that Humphrey got after that, and there was a ton of it. And it was very divided between hate mail and praise. And a lot of the hate mail was from people in the South saying, you obviously don't know anything about the South. Mm. Um, and Humphrey would point out that he'd lived in the South, or they would say, the only reason you support civil rights is because Minneapolis doesn't have any blacks, another thing that was untrue. And there was also a lot of hate mail from the North along those lines. Um, so very revealingly, it wasn't just a regional split. And on the other side, there were extraordinary letters and telegrams to him. Harry Truman's minister wrote to him and said, I've been a Southerner, but you've changed my mind. Civil rights leaders like Walter White of the NAACP wrote to him, thanking him. Um, the most moving exchange of them all was with Cecil Newman, the black newspaper publisher I mentioned before, and the man I describe as Humphrey's racial conscience. And the very first telegram Humphrey got, you can always tell by the Western Union timestamp, 23 minutes before even Muriel sent her telegram, <laughs> was from Cecil Newman. And he extols Humphrey and says, God bless you for your efforts. And he puts a banner headline at the last minute on that week's edition of the Spokesman. And Humphrey, writes back, because Humphrey was very aware that it wasn't him doing for black people, that it was always a partnership, and that the mass movement was essential to what he could do inside. That you had to have an A. Philip Randolph as Mr. Outside for there to be a Hubert Humphrey as Mr. Inside. And he writes back to Cecil Newman, and he says, this wasn't my triumph, this was our triumph. And it was people like you who were fighting these battles for years and years who made this possible. Now you end your book with um, uh, an African-American couple come, driving up to Minneapolis uh, 
a year or two or three after he, uh, Humphrey had passed away just to visit the grave. You want to end with that story? I, I will, and I have to say, this is almost, you know, it's, it, it makes my skin prickle to talk about the coincidence here. There is a young reporter from the Minneapolis Tribune named Ruth Hammond, who happens to be somebody's sister, I now have discovered, who was doing a feature article one day in 1981 on this very beautiful and famous and historical cemetery in Minneapolis, Woodlawn Cemetery. And in her story, which I cite correctly, being an ethical author as I am, <laughs> um, she talks about this black couple, Solomon and Aileen Slaughter, who've driven up from Gary, Indiana, to visit Humphrey's grave. They drive up, it's like 600 miles, they spend 15 minutes at the grave, they turn around and drive back. And she asks them why. And uh, Solomon Sauter says, I wanted to pay my respects because he did something for my people. Yeah. That was a very interesting way to end. <laughs> that was a very good story. I, I mean, just, um, and I, of course, found it a little bit extra moving. My sister was about 26 or 27 years old at the time that she did that story. Yeah, it was, well, it was amazing when George and I got in touch in our lives. I do have a big family, but it's not, you know, I have 11 brothers and sisters, but still. <laughs> right, right, and Hammond is not the most unusual last name. No, exactly. All right, so thank you very much. Yeah. One more question? Okay. okay. Now, one of the first slides that you showed uh, was in the uh, Oval Office, and Humphrey was standing up to yes. Johnson like that, and Johnson was in Humphrey's face, and it was almost <laughs> like Humphrey was saying, don't talk to me like that, Buster. <laughs> well, what was their relationship? You know, I'm going to defer to the <laughs> great Robert Caro and Robert Dalek <laughs> on that. I read a lot of Humphrey's correspondence when he was vice president and Senate to find people from his earlier life who he was still in touch with. Like, that's where I found out about Rudolph Eberly from a letter Humphrey wrote to Eberly at that point. But I did not even begin to go into that. I spent eight and a half years just getting to 1948. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, you know, with what Caro and Dalek and Nick Cotts and, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin and other people have done with LBJ and, um, you know, Jonathan Ike and, and David Garrow and Taylor Branch on civil rights history, I felt like I'd have to be the biggest fool in the world to venture into the 60s and think that I could have anything new to reveal or any better way of telling that story. Whereas in this case, I felt like I have terra incognita. I have a part of Humphrey's life and a part of the civil rights narrative that if we knew it, we've forgotten it and that many people never knew to begin with. And now we know. So So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 120th year of enlightened discussion. Uh, thanks for bringing a little enlightenment about Hubert Humphrey because it wasn't obvious to us when we were teenagers. <laughs> to me neither. <laughs> Thank you so much, George, and thanks to everyone. Thank call. you very much for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.